Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of Misalign. This week, I have a great interview for you guys. I'm here with Ray Harkins. He has done quite a few things within the industry. Right now, he's working at Midroll, which is a sort of podcast advertising company of sorts. It's pretty new, so we will definitely dive into that a little bit later. But he also helps out at No Sleep Records, which I'm sure most of you have heard about. So, Ray, how are you doing today? Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and what all you do? Of course. And well, I appreciate you saying it's going to be a great interview before anyone has even heard it. <laughs> you're, you're already setting me up for that. So yes, of course. I, actually, I'm going to say this is going to be a spectacular interview. So stick around. But yes, your your qualifiers are correct. I do work at my day job is at Midroll Media and you accurately described that. Um, we Technically now it's kind of a media company yeah. um, because we also own and operate uh, a lot of different podcasts as well. But um, yeah, and the company's been around for uh, about since like 2012 or so, 2012, 2013 is when it kind of started to uh, gain traction. But um, yeah, but I've only, I've been there for maybe about six months or so. So I'm still relatively the new kid on the block. But um, yeah, I helped out with No Sleep Records from about 2012 till about uh, mid last year, I want to say. So 2015 is what kind of when I, I, uh, stepped out of that. And then, um, I worked at Century Media Records. I sang for bands. I put on music festivals. Basically the only thing I haven't done within the context of the music industry is like college radio. So yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I have no area of expertise in that, but, uh, everything else I've kind of, you know, f- fingered around with in some capacity. Yeah. Well, I briefly helped out at Drexel's radio station. So I think we have all the bases covered over here. <laughs> that's, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now we're, we're, uh, we've got all the bases covered. so to speak. <laughs> Yeah. I did everything, but my final DJ test. So I was never an actual DJ, but I was on air once or twice. So, you know, good enough. <laughs> well, that's cool. Well, do you, uh, how come you didn't do your DJ test? I mean, that that's like, that's part of the fun of being on the radio to play your own music. Yeah. Well, the thing is I started it freshman year when I was living on campus. So the radio station wasn't that much of a hike for me, but then by the time freshman year ended was when I was supposed to be doing the final DJ test and everything. But then once I moved about a mile away from campus, roughly, I was like, do I really want to walk in terrible weather most of the time just to get to the radio station? And I felt like that was something I knew I wouldn't be able to force myself to do every week because most shows were weekly shows at a certain time. And I just ended up doing some other stuff. Like I started helping Zach with property of Zach and kind of the radio station just fell by the wayside and I didn't really go through with it, but I did all the training and everything. So I basically know how it works at least, which is always good to know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I understand the, uh, the time factor and the, uh, the weather. Definitely. Those are, those are both understandable things. So I'm, I'm not going to be like a dad. <laughs> like, oh, you failed. You didn't follow through. Cause I understand. Yeah. Especially in Philly where you get unpredictable weather all the time. <laughs> absolutely. But yeah, so why don't we go ahead and start off with kind of how you got involved with music to begin with. I know you've been doing stuff in music for quite a while. You had your band taken, and I'm sure the interest in music kind of started before that. So why don't we go ahead and kick it off with that? Sure. The, um, yeah, the, it, it, 
my I don't come from a musical family. It's not like my uh, mother or father were you know musicians in any capacity. My mom's a teacher, um, and my biological father he was in the air conditioning business in Las Vegas uh, because that's where I was born. And so it wasn't like music was just kind of a thing. You know, it was was uh, present, but not in the the fact that this was an important component of life. Um, nor did I come from an artistic family. So it's like I didn't have any uh, predisposition. It's like my mom listen to like, I think maybe a rotation of like four or five things. So it was like, you know, Bob Dylan, the Beatles, the Phantom of the Opera soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Like there were a very limited scope of things I was exposed to, but all the things I was exposed to, I really enjoyed. Um, and then it was, uh, cause yeah, in the, I was in my like I don't know, 11, 12 years old in the early nineties. And so that's when obviously like grunge and alternative music started to become, uh, present. And just because I lived in Southern California, we had the luxury of having an amazing radio station uh, like K-Rock around. Yeah. And they, yeah, they, uh, it's still, I mean, still to this day, it's one of the most powerful radio stations in the country. And so they were, you know, pretty much on the cutting edge of, of playing a lot of this stuff. And then also playing, you know, local bands. Um, I remember a DJ named Kat Corbett. She had like a locals only show from like, you know, like 10 to 11 at night on like Fridays. And so uh, all that stuff was kind of, you know, lingering in my head. And, um, but it wasn't until that, uh, I started to watch the MTV program, 120 minutes. That was definitely very influential in me getting an alternative view to music. Cause that's, you know, they were playing a lot of the grunge stuff, you know, whatever your Pearl Jams, your Nirvana's and sound cards. And, uh, but then they also were playing, um, some early videos from like no effects and rancid, um, and that sort of stuff. So it was kind of like, Oh, that's interesting. And then I distinctly remember watching rage against the machines killing in the name of video. And that was like, Oh wow. Like, so everybody isn't like happy with how things are like running with the country. And it was just, <laughs> yeah, it provided a dissenting point of view to me that didn't, wasn't introduced before. And so I was kind of like, Oh, that's interesting. So, I took all those things and started to kind of, you know, move through junior high. Um, And then I also will credit the band uh, Descendants for being a huge influence on me as well. Um, And I found out about them very randomly through a movie called Pump Up the Volume with Christian Slater. This was like, gosh, late 80s, I want to say. Maybe it came out in the early 90s. Um, But basically, he was a pirate radio DJ and he played music on like a, a channel that, you know, had like a four mile radius, which happened to hit his high school. And like, no one knew that he was this like secret DJ, but he was, you know, basically kind of like a Howard Stern sort of personality. Um, and people, you know, loved it. But anyways, he played uh, a descendant song on there, uh, the Wiener Schnitzel song, which is essentially just like a 30 second sort of joke track. But I liked that. And I was like, oh, I want to seek that out. So descendants were basically my entry point to the more independent minded music. And around that same time is when, you know, uh, Green Day's Dookie came out and all that stuff started to kind of congeal. And that's when I was like, oh, so there's this whole entire universe that I am diving into. And um, yeah, so that was the basically the the kind of jumping off point from there. Yeah. And you mentioned K-Rock being such a huge influence and it still is today. So I kind of want to dive deeper into that briefly if we can. I know K-Rock, they still do the Locals Only show, I believe, still once a week. But back in the 90s, even though, you know, I was just born in 92, I'm sure it was still focused a lot on local music, especially with, you know, No Doubt, Social Distortion, Agent Orange, and some of those other bands that were huge here, and especially like you mentioned, Dookie came out. I know Green Day's more so from the Bay Area, but they played a ton in Orange County. You 
would have them playing, you know, like small shows out in Costa Mesa and that sort of thing. So do you think even though K-Rock is in Los Angeles, it still has a huge influence on sort of the Orange County music scene? Yeah, I would agree. I definitely think that they've they've been able to, even though terrestrial radio, um, here we are talking about terrestrial radio on a podcast. Yeah. It's like the, <laughs> the there are still uh, stations that are very influential just because, you know, most people, when they obviously get in a car, they don't want to think about what they're playing. They turn on a radio station, whether it's AM or FM, and then that's kind of it. Um, and so I think that there is a, a, a definite correlation where it's like, and K-Rock still puts on um, you know, they're almost acoustic Christmas yeah. and like they have these huge radio shows because, um, I mean, I definitely remember uh, they I don't I'm fairly certain they haven't done this in, in quite some time. But they used to do the K-Rock Weenie Roast. And that was they would do that at the uh, the same venue. They do the acoustic Christmas at the Irvine Meadows Amphitheater. Now it's called the Verizon Wireless or whatever they're calling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, they would do that in the summer. Um, and that's where uh, I, I think I because and, and also they would do a lot of ticket giveaways. And so it was funny because my one of my best friends in junior high school, uh, his mom, for whatever reason, was incredibly lucky. And she would always win tickets for us to these amazing shows, like, you know, seeing, uh, you know, Bad Religion at the Roxy and like uh, seeing, you know, Rage Gets the Machine um, at uh, the Cal State or the uh, the Carson campus or whatever, Cal State, Dominguez Hills, that's what yes, it's called. Yes, yeah. And uh, so she would always win these tickets. And I remember one year she won us tickets to the K-Rock Weenie Roast and uh, we were able to, you know, go front and center and it's like you know we saw sublime sponge like all these bands that were popular and it was right around 93 i want to say um but yeah just because they're able to take all of these bands and uh package them up in a way that it's like oh yeah well this is this is something i like and it just it's absolutely perfect for a casual music fan because they can go to you know one or two concerts a year and then be able to see everything that they like and uh that's it and it's perfect so yeah there's uh, k-rock is a huge influence still to this day and i mean it was it was influential even you know in different generations where it was like rodney on the rock like him being a champion for punk rock in the late 70s and early 80s um he was the only one pretty much in the entire country that was taking a risk on playing you know germs and all of these bands uh, that were popping around in the local la scene and you know people were would clamor to get on his show to be like please please play my music um and so it was uh yeah k-rock's uh, k-rock's importance cannot be understated yeah and you mentioned the la scene obviously there are are a ton more venues in LA. And for most people who see tour ad mats and that sort of thing, it's like bands will never play, they never have to play the same venue twice practically in LA. But in Orange County, it's a little different. And I know for people who aren't from California, they're probably like, oh, well, LA and Orange County are right next to each other. They must be pretty easy to get to. And I'm just like, no, you clearly have not made that drive before <laughs> because yeah, yeah. now that I'm in between jobs right now and back in Orange County, it's like I'll get invites to LA shows and I'm like, even though I don't have a job, do I really want to go to that during the week and sit in rush hour traffic to get there, you know? Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, and obviously both scenes are are, are completely different where yeah. it's like you look at the uh, the all ages venues that exist in Orange County and the reason that they exist in Orange County is because obviously the LA scene is definitely geared more towards a 18 slash 21 plus. And so, right. and you can, you can distinctly see the difference in the crowds where it's like, you know, the Orange County all ages shows tend to be a little more crazier where kids are going off or whatever versus the LA shows where it's a little more subdued. Like, yeah, there is a element of 
of energy about uh, shows that are targeted to an all ages crowd, uh, like you know the House of Blues Sunset Strip when that existed. Yeah, but. Uh, but yeah, but there's just, you know, there's a completely different vibe in the same way that it's like, if you play a show in San Diego, it's definitely different than Orange County. And so every, yeah, every pocket, even though it's like, like you said, it's within a, you know, two hour radius from one another. It's like, you feel like you're almost playing, you know, to completely different States in a way. Yeah. And it seems like down here in Orange County, more venues kind of come and go or change names and that sort of thing. I know in downtown Fullerton, there was, what was it? The alley, the alley cat, something like that. Yeah, the alley, and then that. Yeah, there used to be a place called the Hub, yeah. which uh, was was ba- it's basically the slide bar now. Um, and the Hub was like every sort of mid '90s emo band played there, um, and it was just you know. And then they they switched names. I want to say it was around like late '90s, early 2000s, and then you know, yeah, they they didn't have bands play there anymore. But they just bands played in this this like little corner at the at the Hub. But yeah, they. There's definitely a lot of um, it's not economically feasible for a lot of places that try to do um, a venue and then mix it with something else. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, yeah. and then, yeah, it's like other places like the Showcase Theater in Corona. It's like that was a mainstay for years and years and years. And bands loved playing there. And then they had their last show in like 2005 or 2006. And like, you know, that left a huge void within like the granted that's not in Orange County. It's in the Inland Empire. But um, still so many people from Orange County and LA and the surrounding areas would travel to go to showcase. So yeah, it always, it's sad. It's sad, but then it also gets you really excited when a place like uh, chain reaction here in Orange County has stuck around for as long as they have, because it's like, it's great. Bands look forward to it. You, you know, you like it because obviously it's close to you yeah. and you're able to kind of duck in and out. And it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a really special thing when you have something like an all ages venue stick around for a long time. Yeah, chain reaction is definitely nice. It's probably 10, 15 minutes from me. And, you know, they put in that target over there. So there's a nice huge parking lot that everyone just goes and parks in for free. Yep. Because, you know, the chain parking lot, when they have a sold out show, that parking lot can't hold. Oh, forget about it. Yeah. Even maybe half the cars, <laughs> you know. Totally. But the, the thing with chain is sometimes shows there are really hit or miss. Like, you could have local bands playing but then only like 10 people show up depending on you know what day of the week it is that sort of thing i've been to shows like that or i've been to shows like when this wildlife came to town and it was just completely packed in there and security was like yelling at everyone to make a path <laughs> so people could like go back yeah. to the bathroom and that sort of thing and get out <laughs> yeah it's 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 been very interesting to watch that uh the venue change because i mean it's like, whatever it's gonna i'm gonna you know be old man on this where it's like <laughs> it, that it used to actually be called public storage like when they first opened so this was like 97 or so they they tried to be basically a coffee shop slash venue and it was hilarious because like (laughs) the the layout of the club as you know it right now has not changed like it's basically exactly the same like merch areas have moved around and they've made it nicer over the years obviously but the way where the stage is and how that's all laid out and how they have the wall there that's all perfect or i mean that's all where it's been right so just just you know close your eyes and imagine if you've ever been to chain reaction which uh, obviously you have yeah <laughs> they j- about like maybe less than four feet from the front of the stage they had tables there so it's like these were they were expecting people to like have coffee while music was playing um and it's one thing to obviously have like a quiet singer songwriter playing in a corner of a coffee shop but like these were, you know, they were having like punk bands. Play <laughs> yeah. They were having hardcore bands. And it was like, I distinctly remember there was this, uh, there's this hardcore band from New York City called uh, Indecision. And they came out here to do a showcase for Revelation Records. And the, like, no joke, there was probably like maybe six people in attendance to watch them play. 
But there's obviously also people there just like wanting to hang out and get some coffee. And it was just like there was there was only, like I said, like maybe about four feet in between the table and the front of the stage. And so it's like us who were there to watch the show just kind of like, you know, stood in all in basically a straight line watching the band yeah. while other people <laughs> just got punished for like 30 minutes by really, really loud music. And, you know, usually after 10 minutes, they, they left. But um, it's interesting to watch the evolution. And then when it was at its heyday, when I say heyday, I mean, like they there were people weren't paying attention to it on the sort of like <laughs> city level where it's like they knew shows was going sh- shows were going on there but it was like I distinctly remember I think one of the um, most packed shows that I personally ever played there it was uh, so this is when like you know Orange County Hardcore was kind of at its uh, you know peak so it was like my band taken bleeding through throwdown 18 visions basically and this this seems absurd but I'm not over exaggerating this they sold. 700 tickets <laughs> oh, wow! To, to a venue like capacity. I think right now they're allowed to sell 300 tickets, yeah. like maybe 350 at the most, because then I think the actual capacity is like around 400. But it was to the point where like you could you could not literally open the doors to like get in. Like it was a <laughs> fire hazard among, a, you know, a, the prime example of a fire hazard. But uh, that was they were flying enough under the radar where, you know, the 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 fire marshal wouldn't come in and be like, holy shit, we need to shut this down immediately. Yeah. Yeah. But now now they, now they found now they, I think, have found somewhat of a balance where it's like even if it's a sold out show, um, they can still somewhat manage it. But, yeah, the, 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 the this wildlife show, I can I can imagine being like, all right, well, we got to keep the aisleways clean. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever made the terrible mistake of going to a show at House of Blues in downtown Disney on New Year's Eve, (laughs) but I was at the Jack's Mannequin show this past New Year's Eve. And you know how you walk down the stairs there to get out of the venue if you're upstairs? I walk down the stairs and I walk out into the crowd and there it is just a wall of people lined up to watch the fireworks. You can't even like breathe when you're trying to walk through. And I was like, how is this even legal for downtown Disney to have all these people just standing here? It's like the only space there was was when you walked either right out of the restaurant you were at. And even then, sometimes there wasn't space or literally where the stairs were at House of Blues was the only open space. And I was like pushing my way through because I had gone and parked in the residential area because I couldn't even get into the parking lot that night. It was such a nightmare. So piece of advice for everyone out there, do not go to a show in downtown Disney on New Year's Eve because you will spend 15 minutes just trying to get from House of Blues to the parking lot. That, yeah, that make that makes total sense. Yeah, when you're when you're putting so much into one area, uh, it's it's definitely a a daunting task. Yeah, you're just like oh, I, I got to deal with like Disneyland people plus show people plus holiday people. It's like oh, that's nuts. Yeah, definitely be prepared to get hit by strollers if you do go. <laughs> for sure, I think that's a that's a safe rule of thumb for Disneyland in general. Yeah, true. <laughs> I'm not a huge Disneyland person personally. I prefer knots because it's always much less crowded. But when you do go to Disneyland, just watch out for those strollers. Absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned Taken. Why don't we dive into that a little more? When exactly did the band start? And were you looking for the band to sort of be a career option for you? Or was it something you and your friends were doing just for fun and for, you know, maybe a little extra money? Yeah, we, um, yeah, I'll unwrap that question. So first thing we started, we existed 
from like 97 till about 2004. 2004 is when we played our last show. And then we've done some sporadic reunions here and there in like 2008, 2010. We just recently played a show again. So whatever. We're in that that total stasis where most bands are, where it's just like, oh, if someone wants us to play a show and it's cool, like we will. Um, but our, our main existence of touring and playing local shows and um, was in 97 till about 2004. So it, uh, we were in high, you know, I was in high school as a sophomore in high school. So like the, the notion of like making a career out of a band wasn't even like that was not a th- thought process at all. Partially uh, for more than one reason, one, because obviously it didn't seem practical. And then two, uh, at that time, it was still a, a weird thing to even think about the context of like punk or hardcore being able to make you a living because that was obviously before um, espe- more so on the on the hardcore side of things because none of our, our our peers once we ended up started to tour and everything like that. The first one of our peers that we felt really broke out was a band like Poison the Well, where um, they, you know, they they released Opposite of December in 1999, and all of a sudden it was like, oh my gosh, like major labels are talking to them, and like that was the first one of our our, our friends that was like, oh wow, this like you could be successful. A lot of our friends' bands were quote unquote making a living out of it, but they were touring, you know, like close to 10 months out of the year. So it's like you, they would spend maybe two months at home, like, you know, not working, but then sweating that they didn't have any money. So it's like, it's easy to say you're making a living off of something if you're just merely keeping afloat. So anyways, I digress, but that was never part of our, our plan. Um, it was just basically, it was like me and one of the, one of other, my friends in high school. Um, we just liked punk and hardcore stuff. We did a terrible band before, uh, taken, which obviously everybody should, because that's the whole part of <laughs> playing it in a terrible band in high school. Yeah. Um, and so basically it was us two. And then we did the, uh, very cliched posting, flyers up at local record stores to be like, Hey, we're, we're, we want to start a band that sounds like Snapcase and unbroken and all these other hardcore bands that we really enjoyed. So, um, yeah, like let's, let's do this. And so we tried out, you know, uh, gosh, I don't know, it was like 10 or so people. Um, and then finally landed on these, these two guys that, uh, were best friends and they went to, they were a little bit older than us, but they were, I think they were a senior in high school. So they were graduating. Um, played with them. And then that's, that was the core group of Taken. Um, we had a different bassist originally, uh, but then our bassist, Nick, who now plays in Circus Survive, um, he went to high school with us and basically he played guitar. And then I was like, I, do you want to play bass? Like, I guess you already kind of know how to do that. And he was like, sure. So that, that was basically the lineup for the duration of Taken. We, we had a few, we had a different drummer, a different guitarist, but that was basically, um, what we did. And, uh, yeah, we put out, Let's see, one EP or two EPs and one full length and a seven inch and a demo. So we were pretty active during that time. We by no means were uh, a big band, but we did a lot of pretty cool stuff for never really, um, you know, we we could headline around the country and play certain places and have like, you know, 100 to 200 kids show up. Um, but we, like I said, we never were at that point where it was like, oh my gosh, like thousands or, you know, hundreds of kids are showing up at our shows. Um, we were kind of right on that precipice in about 2003 when um, basically real life started to come down around some of the band members where they felt like they had to, um, you know, pursue real life uh, activities and what have you and get jobs because our lives were structured around the band in the sense of I was working at a record store. um, You know, some of the other guys were working jobs that were totally fine with us leaving for months at a time and coming back and having a job. So that was a nice luxury. 
Um, but yeah, so we, uh, we were right there. We were actually about to sign with uh, that label that no longer exists, but was really, really prolific at the time, the Militia Group. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, we were, uh, we were really good friends with the band uh, The Beautiful Mistake, and uh, we were going to sign with them. But then, um, yeah, th- things started to kind of crumble around us, and so I, I would have felt like a dick if I signed a recording contract. <laughs> and then it was like, hey, guys, so I don't have a band anymore. Um, so, but yeah, it was, it, was all, it was all really exciting. And basically everything I've ever had in my life since then in regards to uh, relationships, jobs, whatever else, has all stemmed across me touring and meeting people and doing that band, um, which is, it's weird to think of something in high school still like quote unquote paying dividends now, but it's like, it's, it's still, it still happens. It blows my mind where it's just like a person's like, oh yeah, I saw you guys and you know, whatever 2001. And like, now I'm, you know, the, uh, the head of digital experience at Vine. And I'm just like, what the fuck <laughs> is this? So goddamn weird, but it's awesome. Yeah. So Yeah. Well, you, we talked a bit about the Orange County, LA venues and that sort of thing. But with Taken, did you play any out of state venues that you really enjoyed and would kind of love to go back to one day? Yeah, we had. Yeah, we we played basically your your typical um, routing of what you would see that still exists today. Like a lot of the a lot of the places that um, you know bands uh, still play. I'm trying to think. We had, for whatever reason, we had a really, really good following in, uh, in and around the Toronto area, so Southern Ontario and Canada. Okay. Um, and we played. We played a place called the Casbah that still does shows there. That those really, really good shows. Um, I'm trying to think of some other places that we played. Uh, we played the Middle East in Boston. Um, that those were really good shows when we played there. Um, we never usually ended up, like we never headlined there on our own, but we always ended up playing really good shows there. Um, and I'm trying to think of anything else that really sparks. Yeah, most most of the other places that like were really good shows for us like just don't exist anymore. Um, and I I often found that, uh, and I, I've related this experience either on my show or in passing with other friends that are still touring. That sometimes the shows in what they would call the tertiary markets. So it's like these are you know complete suburbs of suburbs. Those shows would end up being the best. Like one of the best shows I've ever played is in a place called like, you know, Valparaiso, Indiana. And it's <laughs> yeah. It's it's for multiple reasons. One of them being like obviously kids are bored. So it's like if a band comes through and it's like, oh dude, what are you doing on Friday night? Like there's a band playing. Who is it? I don't care. Like I'm just gonna go. Um, so there's that. But then also the unbridled enthusiasm that people have when you do visit them <laughs> at a place that doesn't get a lot of sort of cultural activity, so to speak. Um it's just it's unbelievable. So it's like you're getting this this weird hodgepodge of like, why are there 400 kids here? And, you know, a lot of them just look like you, your average sort of teenage mall goer. But then you start to play and they're freaking out. And then after you're done playing, you're selling so much merch and they're saying, oh, my God, you've changed my life. This is so amazing. It's like, how do you not want to, like, go back to those places over and over? And like those are usually not venues. They're just like, you know, either VFW halls or gyms or whatever, where it's like one kid figures out that they can rent the space for, you know, a hundred dollars and put on a show. So, um, those are kind of the more magical memories rather than like the, the, the staples of like, Oh man, I remember playing, uh, the Roxy with thrice. Like that show was great, but I don't think it was because of the Roxy. I think it was because of thrice. So, right. Right. <laughs> so yeah, that's that. Those are the memories that I have with that. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned Indiana specifically. I don't know if this is in the same place you were talking about, but I do recall reading about a venue in Indiana that was just super popular for punk bands. It was either on Indiana University's campus or very close by. I, the name of it escapes me at the moment, but I just 
thought that was something that was very interesting. But when you think about it, Indiana has a ton of, you know, big college towns there, Indiana universities in Bloomington. And I guess most people just don't really think of that state as one where you could really have a lot of success touring. But sometimes it's states like that that really can surprise you, like you mentioned, and make it really fun. Absolutely. I mean, I think it all it does is take the dedication for, you know, one, two, three people to kind of be like, hey, let's put on a show and like, let's build this this little community, uh, however small it may be, um, and then do it. But yeah, I think I think maybe the place that you're talking, the, the attic, I don't know, that sounds kind of, I think it, that was in that general area. But yeah, it might regard- be that. Yeah, regardless, it's like, you do have these special moments in time of like this thing existing for two years and then it goes away and then like the scene splinters apart because there's no place to play and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a tale told by many people where it's like they name a venue in their area and you're like, I've never fucking heard of that. And you're just like, well, yeah, that's because it was special to like those select people and the lucky bands that were able to kind of like play through there on tour or whatever. Um, but it's it just, like I said, all it takes is one or two or three people kind of like pulling their resources together and kind of figuring it out and being like, Oh, I think we could do a show at this, you know, random hall that my mom's friend has a friend who <laughs> can talk to the person to rent it out. You know? Right. Well, you mentioned working at a record store while you were in Taken. What record store were you working at at the time? It was a, it's a store that still exists. Um, it was larger in the sense of like, we had a, a chain of three stores. It's called Bionic Records. Okay. Um, and it still exists. It's uh, the store is located in Cyprus now. It's owned by uh, one of my close friends who I worked with at uh, that we used to have a store in Huntington Beach. Um, so shout out to Mike D at uh, Bionic Records in Cyprus. Go there because it's still an incredible store. Um, but yeah, we used to have three stores: one in Huntington Beach, one in the city of Fullerton, and then one in Cyprus. So all this is around Orange County. Um, and so I got hired there. It was yeah, right around two thousand or so. Um, and, uh, yeah, that for, it was an amazing job because they totally understood that I'm touring and, uh, there'll be times that obviously I'll have to get my shift covered. But basically I think there's only maybe four or five people that I worked with, uh, at the Huntington beach store in particular. Um, and two of us played in like, you know, full-time touring bands. So when he was gone, I was covering his shift. So I'd be working like, you know, sometimes five, six days a week. And that was fine because, you know, I needed the money and I was home from tour. Uh, but then there'd be times where I'd be gone and he would work. And so it was kind of this symbiotic relationship that worked really well. Um, but towards the end of that, because um, I worked there for about two or three years, and then I got hired to work at a record label, uh, Century Media Records, doing A&R for them. And I was, it, I mean, this sounds insane, but I was still able to kind of negotiate the idea of touring and working in a, and working at the label. So they saw the value of me traveling around and meeting people and playing in bands. Um, but then I didn't have to like, you know, go into an office every day because I was on tour, obviously. So uh, I was able to, yeah, still tour and get paid a full-time salary. Um, which was basically like the dream scenario for me. Yeah. Where I was like, oh wow, like I, I have a full time job, but I, but it, you know, to be fair, it was a ridiculously large amount of work because this was kind of you know pre smartphones. Like I remember it was two thousand, two thousand four. I think I got my first sort of like email capable phone, and I was a uh, tour managing that band Alexis on Fire, and it was just unbelievable because I was sitting in the van being like, holy shit, I could respond and type to email, like type my emails <laughs> yes. in the passenger seat. Like granted, it took me like, you know, 10 minutes to bang out an email because it was so like, you know, it was a full keyboard and 
uh, it was just brilliant. Yeah, the Sprint Trio. That was, uh, <laughs> nice. I, and it had a yeah, it had a stylus, and I was so excited about it uh, because tip before that, all I would do is like you know obviously sit around in the van all day. Like I don't have internet access there. Play the show. Usually end up staying at a person's place um, because you know we weren't rolling around and buying hotel rooms for everybody um, because I was a really really stingy person and tried to put all the money back in the band. It's like no, we'll we'll stay at someone's house. Totally fine. And so then I would stay up and do emails from like, you know, one to like four in the morning and then, you know, wake up at nine and do our ridiculous drive. So it was a lot of hard work, but it was definitely a ideal scenario. Yeah. And like I mentioned earlier, me being in between jobs right now, it seems like now it's so much harder to kind of get that dream scenario you mentioned where you can kind of do all the things you want to do at once and still, you know, get paid enough to pay rent, that sort of thing, eat, you know. (laughs) But I finished college December of 2014. And within a month, basically, I had a job at a company called Music Reports, which was just doing data entry for song licensing, song publishing information and that sort of thing. But for someone like myself, I have my label, Wreck-It Records. I have my website, Hi-Fi Noise. Those things kind of are more of a creative side, even though they're still the business part of the industry. And sitting at a desk all day just doing data entry kind of wasn't exactly what I wanted to be doing. But now that I'm basically in the process of looking for a job again, it's really difficult to sort of find that thing that you really want to do and be able to get paid for it now because, you know, so many more people know that you can get these jobs and especially me going to Drexel and actually majoring in music industry. It's like a whole different beast now than it was back then. It's like, I feel like back then, especially in Orange County, the scene was kind of bigger and there were more companies here. I know we have no sleep out here, but what do you think about that and kind of how the music industry has progressed and more and more companies are shooting for, you know, the LA, Nashville, New York areas. Yeah. I mean, I think that that will always be, uh, uh, I wouldn't even say an issue, but that will, those, those three cities you just mentioned will always be the targets. It's like everything else that kind of exists outside of that is just an outlier. You know, it's a very, it's an exception to the rule. It's like the fact that rise records exists in Portland, Oregon. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an anomaly. It's not something that most people can kind of <laughs> strive for. Yeah. It's like, Oh, I'm going to exist in this area. Uh, and that will be it. Um, it's like, it, it, because I will use rise records as an example. It's like, you know, Craig for the longest time, um, was, uh, you know, working for the government as like a sort of cartographer map maker. And he was doing rise, he was doing rise records on the side. And it was one of those things that it, it, it didn't happen for him until, um, you know, he had multiple releases that were just doing these insanely huge numbers that he was able to kind of, you know, quit and focus on it. But he lived in that area. So he lived in like the, you know, the, the Portland, Oregon area. Um, or I think it might've been in Seattle. I can't remember exactly, but he was in the Pacific Northwest. So like I said, I'm using that example as like an outlier. So, you're always going to have to gravitate towards those areas, especially if you are obviously on the the job hunt and kind of you know seeing what's a, what's available and what's out there, um, because yeah, that's just you, you have to kind of put yourself into the middle of it. Um, and it's like I I look at what I've been able to do, and like that was just a sheer. Um, I know everyone always is like, oh, it's just I was just really lucky, and it's like yeah, there, there's there's a bit of that, but it's definitely like I hustled. I made sure that like I knew you know, as many people as I could. Um, and the whole reason I got a job at the record label was because they were looking to sign the band that I was in. So 
I think, you know, w- using you as an example, it's like what you're doing by spreading yourself across, you know, doing a podcast, doing a website, like while it may not, it may not generate a huge amount of traffic or awareness or whatever it is that obviously so many people use as metrics, it doesn't matter because you're developing all these different muscles and disciplines that you kind of plug yourself into different scenarios. Um, and I think, and especially in the music industry, the notion of people that do like one or two things, like that's dead. I just, I, I can't believe people that I, I run into from like, you know, d- different generations uh, than me. In, like when I say older than. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and I, it's like they they do one thing like I, uh, you know, not throwing shade on the person who uh, replaced me after working at Century Media. But his his whole thing and like and mind you, he's an incredibly successful A&R guy. Like he signed a lot of bands. He sold a lot of records, way more than I ever have. But he came in to work at the label and there was a lot of things that he frankly did not know how to do. So stuff like ISRC codes and label copy and a lot of the sort of, um, you know, admin work that, you know, I just knew how to do because I was like, oh, well, it just fell under my umbrella. So of course I'll do it. Um, and I think that that model of you being like an expert at one thing and not knowing anything else is just a disservice. So it's like, yeah, by spreading yourself across different mediums, it's only going to help because then who knows, you might work in something that's completely detached from the music industry, but then you'll start to develop this, this discipline or this, this, uh, this skill that you'll be able to directly relate back to the music industry. Once a job kind of becomes available or you hear about it or whatever, it's just kind of, you know, making yourself known out there is pretty much the most important thing you can do. Yeah, definitely. And I'm very thankful, obviously, that I was able to just come, you know, move home, not have to pay rent right now to sort of just figure things out, kind of focus on the website, the podcast, the label, that sort of thing. I mean, obviously, it would also be nice to have a job where I can actually make money and have money to spend on other things, you know, Right. but I feel like it's just going to be a bit of a process and I do agree with you that it's kind of like the more things you do, the more of a chance you have to be noticed. And a lot of people kind of laugh or look at me funny when I would say that I majored in music industry because, you know, flying between California and Philadelphia, you end up sitting next to people who, you know, maybe chat you up on a plane or something. And whenever I mentioned Drexel, most people thought I was going there for engineering or something like that, because that's what the school's known for. And then whenever I would say music industry, I would kind of get this funny look and they would kind of like wonder what that was. But the nice thing about Drexel's program is they cover a lot of things. Like you mentioned, the ISRC codes, publishing, licensing. We even did some copyright law classes and that sort of thing. So it kind of gives you a broad knowledge of everything that happens in the music industry. And you can choose to either do the business side or the tech side. They used to have a pre-law track, but unfortunately, they don't have that anymore because I guess there just weren't enough people really to kind of justify keeping those classes after the main lawyer who was a professor there left. And I think it's interesting to see, you know, music industry popping up now as a major because before it was like you just had to know people to get your foot in the door. And I mean, it is still similar today, but I feel like maybe having a music industry degree might give you a slight advantage over some people who maybe just majored in, you know, communications or something like that who might not know major details about the music industry that are important 
to kind of building a career here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. I mean, there's definitely a lot more value in the the music industry classes that exist now, uh, just because there's there's much more knowledge. Like I remember, I think I took I took one music industry class at a community college. Um, this was yeah, probably 2002 or something like that. And it was actually it was funny because it was me and uh, the singer of the band Throwdown, Dave Peters, we were in the class. Like, we didn't know. We just showed up first day. And it was like, oh, hey, what's up, dude? That's <laughs> nice. funny. And the, what they were teaching at this, granted, it's a community college, so of course you're not going to get the cream of the crop professors, but what they were teaching us was like, dude, we're like talking about sheet music from the 60s. Like, this was <laughs> mind-blowing. And at that time, I was working at a record label, so it's like basically my friend Dave and I, we could have got up and – taught the class and had way more relevant information to be plugging into people uh, than our professor who was just like just going on and on about stuff that's just like, dude, that's not even like, granted, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I know everything about the music industry, but what you're explaining right now is not directly correlated <laughs> to it at all. So yeah. I do. I, I think I, I think you're right where it's just like you, you have not only do you have a piece of paper that says you're a valuable human being, um, <laughs> but then it also it, it also is directly related to like, no, like this is uh, this is not only a prestigious university, but there there's a lot more weight to be thrown into that rather than just like, oh, we don't need to take this seriously because like, no, no, who's who's this person is, you know? It's like, oh, well, maybe we should actually look at that because there's uh, there's importance in that now as opposed to just like a joke degree, you know? Yeah. And you talked about being at Century Media earlier. Where did you kind of go from there? Did you go to No Sleep right after that or what? Yeah, I, I, was, at, I was at Century Media for, gosh, uh, I think it was about eight or nine years. So, yeah, I worked there for a long time doing um, functioning different roles there, uh, essentially all under this sort of A&R. So I was signing bands, doing marketing, um, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then basically... It was in 2009 when I transitioned out of that into uh, my previous job, which was working at PETA 2, okay. which is the animal rights organization. Yeah, something I've, I've always been passionate about. You know, I got introduced to veganism and vegetarianism when I was like, you know, 15, 16 years old through bands like, uh, you know, Earth Crisis and Shelter and all that sort of stuff. So I it was one of those things I never um, was a sort of sign in the street corner protesty sort of guy. I was like, okay, well, because I am this, this is a personal choice. I will influence people just by seeing like, oh, Ray seems like he's got his stuff together. Like it seems like a cool lifestyle or whatever. But um, so I got this job at PETA 2 basically doing sort of their music and partnerships marketing. Um, and it was a job that I never even knew existed. So uh, I, I had to say yes, because I felt like I learned everything that I needed to at Century Media. Um, the music industry uh, was it was still obviously something I was passionate about. But I was like, oh, wow, like this this different job is going to pay me more money. I can work from home. So yeah, they uh, basically all of these bonuses that that PETA was able to uh, offer me, I was I just couldn't turn down. I was like, I have to try this out. Um, whether or not I'll, I'll enjoy it, who knows? But uh, I did. I was there for you know si just over six years before I transitioned out to work at my current job. But in the middle there is when I basically I started to help out No Sleep. So like I said, it was around 2012. When um, I've known Chris for a long time, I stepped into just basically being like, hey, here's this guy who it's him and one warehouse person. He just needs help. Like he just needs a person to bounce ideas off of, um, you know, from whatever that may be. So I kind of stepped in as a consultant um, and just helped him out for a couple months. Just being like, dude, don't you don't need to, you don't need to pay me anything. Like, let me just see if I can help you. And if you find 
what I do helpful and valuable, then we can figure out some sort of official structure. Uh, so I did that because right around that time he was releasing like Law Disputes Wildlife and Balance of Composures Separation. So it's like these are huge records and like he's shipping, you know, tens of thousands of copies and then all of a sudden it's like just him and one person. So uh, I stepped in there and then I consulted with him up until, yeah, it's about, about May or June of 2015 um, where I was, a, I, I just two things. One, I just didn't have the time to help him out as much as I, I would have liked to. Um, and two, he just honestly, he had to allocate financial resources to different parts of the company. So it was like, yo, I can't pay you. And it's just like, okay, well, that's, that's totally understandable. It's like, I am, I am, I am here to help you. And if I'm not helping you, then why, why do I need to be here? You know? Um, so that's when I, that's when I transitioned out of that. But again, just kind of always trying to do uh, a million different things at one time uh, has always proved uh, to be very beneficial for me. Yeah. And you being on this podcast right now, it's only fitting to mention your own podcast, 100 Words or Less. When did you start that? And what's your process for basically getting interviews? You've done a ton of band members, you've done people who weren't in bands, label people and that sort of thing. Yeah, I I, I like to the sort of rule of thumb that I use for guests, like obviously picking band people is a very easy thing to do, not only based on my relationships, but just on the fact that it's like, well, yeah, these are people who are currently active within the music scene. But then I also, uh, like, I, so anyways, the rule of thumb that I have is like, if independent music has shaped your life in some capacity, whether that's you're still active in it or whether that's like you're you know, going to shows and the principles that you learned, you learn in your public radio or you're taking over to your public radio job. It's like that's fine because these are people who I like to pursue called secret punks. So it's like these are people who are doing something that isn't even remotely connected to the music industry or music now. But all the principles they learned from that particular scene, they totally use to this day. So, um, yeah, but the process I go is basically just honestly, whoever interests me, if I find like, a, you know, I'll, I'll use an example, like later on today, I'm interviewing um, an author and uh, a comedian historian, I guess you'd call him, this guy named Cliff Nesterhoff, um, who's, you know, appeared on like Mark Maron's show. And he's, you know, pretty well known in the comedy community um, and wrote a great book called The Comedians, which basically documents all of this stuff that just doesn't exist outside of the context of like these really, really old entertainment magazines, like, you know, from the 20s and 30s. But so this is a guy who has just like, it seems like he has some of the same sort of principles that I just notice in, in the, whatever the punk and hardcore and independent scene. So I just like hit him up on Twitter and I was like, dude, did you ever like, you know, listen to punk or hardcore or anything like that? And then he immediately started engaging me. He's like, oh yes. And started talking about bands. And so those are the experiences that I love to have because like no one would immediately think of this person as being like a music you know, guy, but, uh, just because I, I, I noticed some things and kind of the breadcrumbs that he spread across, um, just random interviews and stuff like that. I was able to pull that out. So yeah, T sometimes it's through publicists. Sometimes it's just through Twitter. Sometimes it's just randomly emailing a person and being like, Hey, do you want to, you want to do this thing? Um, so yeah, and I've been doing it now for close to three, three and a half years. And, um, it basically, I'm going to stop doing it when it stops being fun, but it's not, it's not at all. So I'm still doing it for uh, for better or worse, you know. Yeah. And starting misaligned with Chris over at Modern Vinyl, he kind of hit me up, asked me if I wanted to do this. He was like, hey, we really want to have a podcast that talks a lot about, you know, women in the music industry and stuff. And I know it's somewhat hard to find 
women in the music industry to kind of get interviews with and that sort of thing. So who has been your best woman interviewer that you've had on 100 Words? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And that's honestly, it's so funny because these are things that um, just because either whether it was like the scene that I was like came up in or whatever, um, and I, I'm not trying to paint myself as this like, oh, I don't view race or sex because clearly, of course, I do. But it's just like it takes people on the outside to be like, yo, you have a lot of white dudes on your show. And I'm like, yeah, you you know what? You're 100 percent right. I, I will make an effort to obviously bring in <laughs> more diverse voices, even though within the context of, you know, white dudes in uh, punk or hardcore, like they all have a, you know, wide a wide variety of stories. So it's like, you know, they're, you can classify them pretty simply by obviously their, their skin color. Um, but the, they also have a variety of, of, of stories within that context. But to answer your original question, um, recently I would say, uh, one of my really, really good friends who does PR, her name is Stephanie Marlowe. Um, she does PR for like bands like uh, deaf heaven and Paul bearer, like basically a lot of the sort of artistic metal stuff. But then she also does stuff for bridge nine. She used to work at victory records, um, long history. Um, and this was the first time she's ever been interviewed. So I loved that experience because I've known her for forever and to be able to kind of walk her through her first interview after setting up hundreds and hundreds of interviews for, um, you know, really important bands in our scene was, was a really fun experience. Um, I also loved the interview that I did with, uh, Brittany from pity sex because that was her first podcast. And so I could tell she was super, super nervous. But we were able to, you know, kind of get her in a comfortable zone and she did a great job. Um, and then Brianna's for, Brianna from Tiger's Jaw was also really, really charming, not only because she's a really nice person, but uh, she was, wasn't was afraid to talk about anything. I, I, didn't, I wasn't sure how deep she wanted to go into certain things or keep certain areas of her life kind of segmented away um, from the general public. But she, she went everywhere. So, uh, yeah. And so I, I definitely am always focused on bringing um, that side of the conversation. Um, and then also, you know, just obviously having people from, uh, different walks of life, whether it's, uh, you know, different sexual orientations than myself or different races, like you you obviously have to do that, even though it's a very, uh, whitewashed scene. Um, you have to have those different perspectives because ultimately, um, that's only going to paint a broader picture of what it is that I'm trying to do. So, yeah. So with your new job at Midworld, do you feel like already having had a podcast for three years or so is helpful to that job? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the only reason I have the job is because of my direct relationship with them uh, from my podcast. Like they picked up my show a couple of years ago um, to help service ads for. Um, and it was like a no brainer for me. I'm like, oh, great. Like if you're if you're going to give me cool people like Squarespace and Casper to do ads, like that's fine. I don't I don't know how to talk to them. So you can go ahead and lock that in. Um, and then once they started to look around for a certain position, uh, you know, they emailed a lot of the hosts of the shows that they represent just to kind of, you know, put feelers out there to be like, Hey, we're looking for these positions. Uh, do you know anybody? And one of the positions they sent over, I was like, Oh wow. Like, yeah, I know someone that someone is me. That sounds like a really cool job. (laughs) And so, uh, yeah, that, and my knowledge of not only like my particular, uh, show, but then just the podcast world in general, just because that's a, I'd say a good 85% of my listening habits all directly correlate to podcasts um, th- th- at this day and age. Um, so it's just all of that kind of congealed where it's like, okay, because ultimately the main, uh, I guess, guiding light and principle that I've taken through my professional life is like, do I get to work with something I care about? Because ultimately I could do 
many different things. I could work in finance. I could work whatever. All these different jobs that obviously a lot of people strive for, but you know, might not find the sort of enjoyment that I've been lucky enough to find all these other jobs um, that still work. Like I'm not going to you know act like it's like, oh, it's all fun and, and games. It's like, well, yeah, there's still, you know, you got to do shit. Um, but the, the fact that I could still work with something I care about, i.e. podcasts, um, still obviously be involved in music with my show and going to shows and, and just the relationships I've built for, uh, you know, the past 20 years in music. But yeah, so I was just like, I can't, I can't say no to this opportunity in the same way that I couldn't say no to working at PETA. Um, it, it was, it felt the same exact way, uh, working for mid role. And I was like, all right, let's do this. This, this should be fun. This will challenge me. This will get me into a different world of like the advertising world that I've you know traveled alongside for quite some time working at record labels and stuff, but never been uh, in the sort of sales role. And, uh, it's really, really fun. I'm enjoying it. Right. So is there anything else that you kind of have in the works right now or is your plan to focus on your job at Midroll and your podcast right now? Yeah, those are the main two things. I recently I did uh I also did a music festival for about three yeah, three years called Sound and Fury, which uh, me and my partner recently uh basically recently sold it back to the original owners um okay. because the music festival existed from like 2006 to 2009 with uh, the original owners. Then it uh, came into my and my business partner's hands in 2010. So we did that from 2010 to 2013. Um, and then it went dormant for a couple of years just because honestly, I didn't have neither myself nor my business partner had any time or resources to de- dedicate to it. It was just so much work. So um, I'm excited that they're doing it again this year. So it's a June, I want to say 10th and 11th at the Regent Theater in downtown Los Angeles. So um, I'm really excited for that just because now I can kind of go back to it as a fan as opposed to going to it and being like the most stressed out human being of all time. Um, So I'm really looking forward to that because I've also been helping, um, you know, kind of consult with them and sort of build the festival and help pick bands and that sort of stuff. So um, that's something I'm really looking forward to. Um, I'm under no um, way in hell that I'm ever going to do a music festival again because that just took years off my life. But um, but yeah, but you you hit the nail on the head. That's basically what I'm focusing on my my day job, my podcast. Um, you know, eventually getting some new music together for my band Taken, um, just because we selfishly want to go back to Japan because for whatever reason <laughs> we do really well in Japan. So uh, I want to get some new music and go back over there and play some uh, unbelievably amazing shows. And then um, yeah, you know, just do do everything else that I do from uh, you know being a dad, being a husband, all the other fun stuff that uh, uh, you know people are never going to interview me about because yeah, it's boring stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, before you go, why don't we talk a bit about some of the music from 2016 you've been enjoying so far and what albums you're really looking forward to? We're obviously recording this a little bit in advance, so there may be some overlap between dates here and whatnot for when whether things have already come out or not by the time you guys all hear this. Right, right. The uh, yeah, it's funny because I I do a, a majority of the listening, like I said, is all podcast related. So it's like yeah. I obviously still pay attention to music, um, but it's like my my music consumption primarily exists in the sort of soundtrack world, which sounds so goddamn bizarre to most people. <laughs> um, but it's like there's been this weird resurgence over the past, I'd say, 
three to four years now where um, soundtracks are just are are, uh, are are either being reissued from movies that I've enjoyed in the past because um, I'm a big sort of you know horror movie guy. Um, so a lot of these soundtracks are being reissued. Um, and like a- every year on my show, I always do a year end wrap up where I'm talking to two of my closest friends and we kind of, you know, share our, our year and list with us. And I always have to fight to not put like four or five different soundtracks in there. I'm like, <laughs> no, no, I can't do it. Like, that's just mean. Like, I don't want to sound like I'm like a, you know, 75 year old man. Um, but it's like, like last year, it's like the, the, it follows soundtrack was incredible. And so I'm looking forward to anything that that, uh, composer disaster piece does for this year. Cause he, he I think he has another score coming out this year. Um, the new record from a band called daughter, um, I saw them open for the national about two years ago. Uh, they played the Hollywood forever cemetery, which is an unbelievable experience. If you can ever watch a band perform there, it's just breathtaking. Cause you're just, you're singing in a cemetery and you're watching, you know, a band play. It's just an unbelievable experience you know, under, under the canopy of stars. Usually it's like, Oh, so good. Anyways, but daughter released a record. Um, I want to say it's called not to disappear if I'm not mistaken. Um, but that came out in January. Uh, I was really, really excited about that. I pre-ordered the new uh, Pity Sex record. I'm I'm a big fan of that band, and I'm excited to see what they're going to do next. Um, And then as far as other records, it's funny. I don't even really kind of like anticipate records um, (laughs) in the sense of like, oh, my gosh, like this is going to be coming out. I'm like, I know it's going to come out, and I'll probably like it. Like the uh, I've been fortunate enough to be really, really close to the guys in Moose Blood. Um, and so they have their second LP coming out at some point in the summer. I don't know exact release date, but I've heard all that and it's just, oh, I, I cannot wait for that record to hopefully launch them into the stratosphere. Cause the, the first one was one of my favorites of that year it came out. Um, and this yeah. record will, will turn a lot of people's heads. Um, so yeah, that record. And then, uh, uh, the, uh, the new Somos record is also really, really good. I was able to hear that, um, late last year. Uh, and I, yeah, it just, it's, it's so awesome to watch all these young bands like do really, really good challenging work. Cause a lot of the times you feel that, um, you know, because you're young, you don't have your chops yet, but it's like so many bands come out the gates being so confident in themselves now. It's just, it's, it's amazing to watch that develop. Yeah, well, I am very jealous that you've heard the Moose Blood album already. <laughs> and I believe Somos actually came out today. It's February 19th when we're recording this for reference for everyone who's listening at a later date, obviously. But that's definitely one I have on my list to listen to because I don't believe I got an advanced copy of that for the website. So I'll have to check that one out. I have not listened to the Kanye album yet, which my friends are hounding me to listen to it. But I feel like I'm just gonna take my time on that one. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on that one. I definitely am like, well, yeah, I could download the pirated version or whatever. But it's like, <laughs> you know, when it when when he uh, when and if he decides to release it in some sort of commercial capacity beyond title, then I'll be like, yo, I'm 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 down, but it's like right now, it's like okay. I feel, I feel like he's still workshopping it. It's like he could be when he actually releases it commercially. It could be very different than what he's released on title so far. So it's like, all right, well, when you get around to it, just let me know. But you know, if, it, yeah. if in six months, in six months, if he's done nothing with it, then it's like, all right, cool. Then I'll then I'll pursue getting a copy uh, from somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, right. And I know he keeps changing songs, like you mentioned at the last minute, said it was going to be out February 11th when it was titled Swish to begin with. And then it changed to Waves and then The Life of Pablo. And there's so many, 
jokes about this album, I'm like, I don't really know if I should take it seriously now or kind of like what you said, just wait and see what happens. Kanye said it's not going to be released anywhere other than title, which I find very hard to believe for someone who claims he's $53 million in debt. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. It should be. Uh, yeah. It'll be interesting to see what's happening. Yeah. So hopefully by the time this episode is out, that will all be settled and we can possibly enjoy the album instead of dealing with all this drama that's been all over, you know, Twitter, the internet in general and everything. Yeah, totally. Totally. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Ray, for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Absolutely. It was a, it was a fun experience. And I, I do like what, uh, what you're obviously doing over there by, like you said, providing a voice to, uh, to the female side of things because, uh, yeah, you, you guys are incredibly important to this whole weird music world that we exist in. So, uh, (laughs) keep, keep doing what you're doing. Well, thank you. And we hope the rest of you all enjoy your day and we hope you come back for more misaligned episodes and definitely go check out Ray's podcast, a hundred words or less. If you have not listened to it, which if you haven't, I don't entirely know what you're doing, but that's okay. Just <laughs> right. just make up for it by going to listen to it. I do find it funny where it's like just because the podcast community is so, uh, you know, tight knit that it's like when one person like jumps in on my show, like, you know, whatever, a week ago, I was just like, yo, where have you been? Like, I, you know, I mean, it's fine. I don't care when you come in to listen to it, but it's just like, I don't know, <laughs> like I, I've been around for a while, like maybe, maybe d- dip in and check it out. But yeah, anyways, regardless, I appreciate the kind words and thank you very much for, uh, for talking to me. No problem. We will talk to you later, everyone.